0: And the portion is verse fourteen to twenty-three. And when they came to the multi- and then when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him. And, am I in the right chapter? Yeah. Falling to his knees and saying, "Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, and he is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water." and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, "Jesus answered and O oh unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could, why could we not cast it out? And he said, "...because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men." They will kill him, and, they, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved.
1: Wow, here I am, Boulevard Bible Chapel. That's great to be back. This is uh, not often the lectern's low for me, but uh, I thought if I stood on the step, I might look fairly normal. <laughs> here we go. Just a joy to be back. This is actually the last place in my Florida tour that started in January. It took me several weeks to persuade Malcolm to let me back, but here I am. <laughs> He's shaking his head. It's a joy. Every time I come back here, more babies born. It shows... <laughs> I I always wonder if it's a Bosworth family, but no, there's all kinds of... And it does show it's a place of life, and that's what I like. Tuesday, we're off to Eleuthera, a tiny little island in the Bahamas, a very small assembly, but we're going to be uh, doing... They have meetings every night in Eleuthera because there's not much else to do. And uh, so uh, just glad that we got this little visit in and we're going to, you know, I was thinking, I've spoken to you a lot of times over the years on doctrine and last year we were talking about faith and uh, I thought, what are we going to do this time? Well, today I want to spend the day talking about what our Lord Jesus taught. We're going to focus on Christ's teaching on faith. I did Hebrews 11 with him in the past, but what did Jesus say about faith? And tonight, very important, we're going to talk about what Jesus taught about obedience. But you know a lot of stuff, you know, as we talk about Jesus on faith and that passage that talks about moving mountains, I want to just uh, remind you of my friend Snoopy because Lucy's saying... To little Snoop here, you dogs don't know anything about Scripture verses. Not like these bright kids that said all her verses this morning. You don't know anything, she said, about grace or baptism or Moses or anything. He says, that's right. He said, theologically, we're off the hook. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, you do know about that stuff. I've talked about grace and baptism and all those things. Apart from all the other speakers, so the news as we start this morning is, you're on the hook. You do know. Uh, and you'll uh, think about that as we get on to saying something that Jesus taught this morning. Matthew 17, you know, is a th- fascinating chapter. Uh, we didn't read all the chapter, but it opens with Jesus taking Peter and James and John up a mountain, and uh, they had... An unforgettable experience. They witnessed Christ's transfiguration. They were actually given the privilege of having a glimpse of Christ's true glory. Physically, they heard the voice of God proclaiming Christ to be the only beloved Son of God. And I got to tell you, it was a true double header because not only that, they also heard and saw Jesus talking about his forthcoming death with no less than those two great heroes of faith, Moses and Elijah. I mean, talk about a mountaintop experience. This was it. And yet, the passage we read, verses 14 through 23, they describe what faced Jesus and those three disciples when they came down from the mountain. I mean, the scene at the foot of the mountain was in stark contrast to that fantastic foretaste of the kingdom, the vision of the majesty of Christ that they'd seen on the summit, because in the plain below, they face very, very clear evidence of the havoc Satan can bring into human life. You know, there's a very famous uh, painter, many of you will have heard of Raphael, and they say that he actually worked himself to death in producing his very famous painting on the Transfiguration, because he tried to captured this very contrast. Tough to see the picture here properly, but, but Raphael's transfiguration emphasizes a contrast between the glory on the mountaintop and the confusion and pain in the valley below. The tremendous contrast between the kingdom of light and the shame and confusion of the world of shadows. Now, I had a lot of requests when I spoke to the young people to do some science demos, and you know I can't bring that stuff anymore. A prison ministry is not my calling, but I did find a few bits of solution and I thought, I will do one little thing for these guys because I want them to get the message of the difference between the top of the mountain and the bottom. So we're going to just... Oh, hymn book's gone now. Another hymn book hits the road. (laughs) Uh, I should have got some bottles at work here. I just want to mix these together. And if you look at this very carefully, I think it's the slope. Well, you know, i got to believe this glass is leaking. <laughs> <laughs> it must be the slope. All right, watch this carefully. I hope if this thing works, you'll see that golden wonder beauty, but things are going to change. Watch carefully. Oh, beautiful! Ah, man, it's gone. There it was. And now it's all darkness, and we'll just rescue the lecture. The contrast, for safety's sake, we'll do this. (laughs) Between that beautiful golden kingdom and the confusion at the bottom of the mountain. You know, it's very interesting to notice that this miracle... Actually, is bracketed by two clear predictions of the reality and centrality of the Lord's death. Uh, the focus, of course, on the amount of transfiguration just before this incident we read was what? Well, Luke 9:31 said they talked of His death that He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then, immediately after the miracle of healing that boy, what did we read in Matthew 17? Jesus said, they'll kill me, and on the third day I'll be raised to life. And, and it says the disciples were filled with grief. They were filled with grief. You know, I thought about that. I thought that the gospel is good news. In some ways, I think this is a pretty sad commentary on the disciples' ability to really pay attention to the Lord. You see, I know the gospel depends on Christ's death. He died for our sins. There's no salvation without the cross and the death of Jesus. But you see, the gospel calls us to be joyful because what does it mean? It means good news. The gospel is good news. It's good news that we sinners can find life in Christ by repentance and faith because Jesus died. But you see, they were listening only to what? The bad news. The disciples focused only on the bad news and they didn't take in, apparently, what Jesus said about the resurrection. How important, as we did this morning in the breaking of bread, to put together the story of the cross with the triumph and hear the whole story of the gospel and that's what makes it good news. But, of course, the disciples didn't fully comprehend the purpose of Jesus' death and the hope and certainty of the resurrection until after Pentecost in Acts 2. These are disciples prior to Pentecost. And in a way, you know, I'm somewhat encouraged by the disciples' slowness to figure out the Lord's plans for our salvation because, you know, I too am very often slow in figuring out what Jesus is trying to teach me. And sometimes I find encouragement by the slowness of some of those, those wonderful disciples in figuring out what Jesus was saying. But I think they should have done better because, I mean, they had actually seen the Lord's miracles. They, they had heard his words directly. They, and on top of that, remember, they were given special powers. If you go back a little uh, earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 10:8, Jesus commissioned them to go and preach the message. And as he commissioned them, he said, as you go, preach the message, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. So the Lord had given them special powers, unique for that day in that moment. And on top of that, as well as the promise of the Lord, they had the promise of the Lord that they could do it. But, but you know, they also had past successes. They, they had past experience of successfully exercising faith and doing miracles. I mean, they'd been able to do the job. Mind you, folks, just think about this. They had exactly what we have. Well, if you're a believer who's walked with the Lord for any kind of time at all, you have past experience of God's faithfulness, and you have his clear promises. We have what they had, experience of God's faithfulness, his promises. That's what they had. But, But even with all that, the reality that Jesus pointed out to them as they failed was that They lacked the faith to use the gift they had been given. And that's a major point in this passage because with all that background, they found themselves powerless to heal this boy. You know, it is always encouraging, and I do encourage you to think back over God's past faithfulness. As you get older, think back through your life how faithful God has been. But I want to say this. You can't go through life relying on past experiences. These disciples have had great moments in the past, but now they face failure. Uh, And the lesson, of course, is that we all need a fresh exercise of faith for every new occasion. We we can't go living on our blessed experience and telling that all the time. I, I know Christians, whenever you see them, they talk about their blessed experience, but it was 30 years ago. And, and it's great to recall that. Never forget the important milestones, those blessed experiences of past days, but beware of becoming like those people that I call them fisherman stories. Don't be like the guys, you know, the guys who say, I want to tell you about the day I caught the big one. It's lovely. to. He brings out the picture every time and it's nice to hear about the day I caught the big one. But folks, we need fresh fish to eat today. And we need to keep casting our lines. You see, what really counts is being ready for the challenges of today and tomorrow, not just looking back to yesterday. So don't be a Christian who only looks back. Look back with gratitude, but we have to keep casting our line. And notice, too, that in their failure, the disciples, notice, very interesting, they didn't make it a priority to go to the Lord. We notice because their failure only came to light when the boy's father, disappointed in their failure, recognized the Lord and the three disciples coming down from the mountain, and he came up to the Lord, and he begged for help, and he said to the Lord, your disciples couldn't cure him. It was only then when it was publicly disclosed that they were able to talk about it. it. It seems the nine disciples were ready to accept their failure. And they only went to the Lord and they only questioned it after it was brought up publicly. Only then, privately, it says, they said, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? And, of course, the Lord had a very simple explanation. Uh, it's very important um, that we do this thing that they did. It's Don't be complacent if you notice signs of spiritual decline. If you find you don't have it, if you find you're, you're not able to, to perform spiritually like you once were, don't become complacent. Take it to the Lord. It's important that, that, that we get on top of any signs of spiritual decline. So often we need to check ourselves because the first thing, we have to get to know the Lord, number one. We have to know Him as our Lord and Savior. But then, how are we doing in our walk? That's always the question. I, I recommend a spiritual checklist. You know, I'm at the age in life where I have more doctors than I can cope with. I used to have see the family doctor every few years. Now I'm wandering off from this guy to check the PSA and the prostrate and the cardiologist and the lipidol guy. and the, Man, I, I'm saying to Babe, what doctor am I seeing today? <laughs> it's all checking up. We seem to be in good shape. Praise the Lord for that. But I thought, you know... It's important, especially as you age, to do this um, health check. But, but how important spiritually? How often do we have our checkup? And it's a very simple kind of checkup I'm talking about. I mean, ask yourself how much time you spend in prayer. Is it less or more than it used to be? I mean, I don't mean just praying when you show up here, but praying privately during the week. Uh, and reading God's Word, is it just a quick devotional for form's sake? or you, uh, More important than that, are you acting on God's Word? Easy to read, but not so easy to do. And bottom line is that you're sharing the Word of Faith with others. If you never talk about what you've read and practiced, hey, something's wrong. So the, the spiritual checklist is very important. We're not supposed to be... You know, I don't have any science, but i got a few little things always in my pocket. Look at this. Isn't this pathetic? I got a rope and it, it, talk about, this is a kind of symbol of some of us spiritually, standing tall, you know. But I want to tell you, if you line these things up, inside this sheath I've got some nylon threads. And if I just line those up properly, before I know it, hey, standing firm and tall. You can stand as a Christian, spend time in prayer, line up with God's word, act on it, share it with others. Now there's a whole difference. You're not this kind of floppy guy who's going nowhere, but you're standing for the Lord, and that's the challenge. Always be ready to challenge yourself uh, and go to the Lord in prayer without delay whenever you sense any deterioration in your spiritual health. And that's very important as you get older. Let me say to older Christians, you walk with the Lord for a long time. Watch out for decline. And the key, of course, is prayer. I want you to notice the importance the Lord Jesus attached to prayer in verse 21. I know verse 21's not in some of the recent translations, but its parallel passage certainly is. For example, Mark 9:29. this kind can come only by prayer. And there's no doubt as you look at the documents, Jesus said the secret here is prayer. And God's power, listen, God's power needs to be requested and relied on in each and every occasion. You know, I I have a funny mind, I have to say. It's funny what comes to my mind when I'm reading these wonderful stories in the Bible. And most of you know I'm a veteran grandfather, of course. I've got four grandchildren. Don't ask me about them or I'll be all day telling you how wonderful they are. I've got fantastic grandchildren. And, and I... And, and, um, I have the pleasure of spending more time than I thought I had watching gripping TV shows. I don't know whether you get them in the States, this. but I spend a lot of time watching gripping TV shows like Thomas the Tank Engine. How many know about Thomas the Tank Engine? Yeah, yeah, that's great. If you're a parent, you've got to... What about, do you know Bob the Builder? Hey, somebody said you don't have it in the States. I've got Bob the Builder fans there. You obviously have kids and grandparents. You know, I, I, I mention these because it occurred to me that the disciples' heart, faith hardly reached the level of Thomas a tank engine. There's that famous uh, scene where he struggled up the hill and had a song that said, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Let, let me tell you how it goes, and Malcolm's not going to ask me back. I'm, I'm risking this because i got booked for next year already. Listen to this. Now we got the I, I, I think the sound I the I can. I think I can. I think I can. I the I of i sound of the sound the sound the the engine the the Join the crew. Bob and the gang have so much fun. Working together,
0: they get the job done.
1: Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Bob the Builder, yes we can! I better take that off. <laughs> can we do it? Yes we can! This is, As I read that story, you know, I thought... Maybe the disciples thought that they could do it at first. Maybe they said to this distressed father, yes, we can, forgetting that every spiritual victory we have, God actually uses our little faith to do by his power what we can't do in our own strength. So don't get into this, yes, I can, Christians who think, yes, I can do it, and rely on their own strength, they're going to fail. We're going to talk about moving mountains this morning, but they wouldn't even move a boulder. Remember that the Apostle Paul said about his ability to do things in Philippians 4.13. He said, yeah, I can do everything what? Through Christ. Through Christ, who gives me the strength. So that's important, but I need to delve quickly now into what Jesus said in response to the disciples' failure to heal this boy, because we need to learn from their mistakes. You remember at the time of this failure, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountaintop. Meanwhile, of course, the other nine disciples are down the mountain, and the crowds and the people are still coming to Jesus, and Jesus isn't available. So what do they do? They have to deal with these nine disciples. And this is actually the first time you read in the Gospels that these nine disciples have to do their ministry and miracles without Jesus standing over their shoulders. Now there's only nine. Uh, and they had no leader to guide them. Even Peter and James and John are gone with Jesus. But as we read this passage, you know, I thought at first Jesus' response to uh, the disciples' failure seems very strong. But you've got to keep in mind that he'd already given the disciples the authority to cast out demons. They already had the promise of the Lord that <coughs> they could do this. And so the Lord, and the Lord had a very simple, clear explanation of their failure. He simply said, It's because you don't have enough faith. But what this really means, we need to think about. What does it mean to not have enough faith? Well, I see two possibilities. I, I, One is that they were so confident in and of themselves that they failed to exercise their faith. Perhaps they failed to seek God first before they went to heal this boy. They were so convinced that they could do this on their own, that they were treating faith well. faith's faith something we have. It's like a commodity in our pocket and uh, uh, we can just get it out and use it just like we spend money. And I did remember to put U.S. dollars in there. (laughs) We have those winky-dink ones in Canada, you know. (laughs) Although yours aren't doing great either. But anyway, faith is not not to be treated as a commodity like money in your pocket. That's one possibility. But on the other hand, with Jesus taking his three uh, key disciples uh, to witness that special moment, I think maybe they were feeling abandoned, left alone. This perhaps left them questioning their ability to tap into the power of God without Jesus, without the three leading disciples physically present. By the way, for ourselves, let me say to you right now, always remember we have the Lord's parting promise that he'll never abandon us, never feel that. He said, I'm with you, what, always, even to the end of the age. So we have no doubt about the Lord's promised presence. But in their case... Either way they failed, whether it was by being overconfident in their own ability or being underconfident in their ability to access the power of God, it boiled down to what? A failure to fully rely on God's promise, the Lord's promise, the Lord's power. And whichever it was, of course, the result was disappointment for the boy's father and continued bondage for this boy. And because of this, the Lord made that strong, heartful outcry of course, as everything Jesus said and did was entirely appropriate. And remember this, don't forget the broader context of this event. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's about to be crucified. I'm going to talk about that more tonight, but he, he just said that. He knew he was about to ascend to the Father. Soon he was going to be leaving the earth forever. He'd spent three years of his life Pouring his teaching into these men. He'd been showing them the way. He'd been nurturing them in ministry. So they knew from direct first-hand experience what faith looked like. And yet, when he came to this opportunity to heal this boy without the Lord physically with them, they failed. And that's one of the reasons I think the Lord spoke out so strongly. Because he knows that soon he'll no longer be physically with them at all when he ministry He's going to be ascended. Of course, he'll have its promised presence. but, But you think about this. I mean, these 12 were not the alternative. They were the plan. This was the way that God had chosen to get the word out, the gospel, to help the lost. So they had to carry on when the Lord was gone. And yet when he was just gone up the mountain, they failed. And I think the Lord's response here gives us an unusual glimpse into the way the Lord grieved at the blindness and faithlessness the faithlessness of those that claim to trust and follow him. I found this very moving. In his response, it was almost as if the Lord was talking to himself as he expressed his eagerness to soon return to the Father. And the Lord said, How long, how long will I be with you? You think about that. You know, we often forget how our lack of faith, our lack of obedience brings sadness to the Lord. We focus on ourselves And we forget the Lord's sadness of heart. And he says, how long? We get so focused on our own trials. We go all the time when we have a difficulty in our trial. We say, Lord, how long? When when are you going to release me from this? But here's an occasion when the Lord said, how long? How long? You know, I think often of uh, the situation with Charlie Brown here. Charlie... If you know anything about Peanuts, you know this character Lucy used to hold that ball for Charlie Brown and ask him to come and kick it, and she always moved it away. But this trusting little guy still tried. And she says on this occasion, Charlie Brown, I'll hold the football and you can come running up and you can kick it. And good old Charlie has a go, and of course the ball goes. And this time, Charlie finally says, How long? Oh, Lord, how long? I mean, this has been a lifelong... Challenge for him. Uh, Well, there it is, you see. That's how we are. We're asking the Lord how long, but this time the Lord's saying, how long, how long? Surely we at times must cause the Lord to explain, exclaim about us, how long, how long? You know, When I read a passage like this, I could almost read the Lord's thoughts. I mean, He's given them promises. He's given them authority. He's surely thinking, how much more time, how many more sermons, how many more miracles, how much more do I need before they can do this on my behalf? How much more experience before they understood? And how much more experience before we understand that the power of God is available to us? How long before... We can exercise our faith enough to continue the ministry and the mission that God calls us to. You see, before we criticize these nine disciples, it's easy to criticize others. We have to stop and hear the challenge that comes directly to us. I mean, surely we too, at times, must cause the Lord to exclaim how long, and, and, and we have to ask ourselves how much more study? How many more Bible studies? How many more exhortations do we need before we really exercise our faith? How long before we take his word into the world and make a difference in people's lives? And I know many of you are doing that. and I was heartened to hear about you going on the beach to teach the gospel. But I have to say, it's so often the case that you have to say to Christians, how much more do you and I need before we will exercise faith and take our place alongside Jesus in fulfilling the ministry that he's called us to. I mean, these disciples have been along for a great ride for three years. This is just a ride in the Ontario countryside to remind me about uh, those places near my house. But they've been for a great ride. I mean, I, I often think about the way they talk to the Lord. Maybe they talk like we do sometimes, like like I hear people say, you know, a very nice sermon, thank you. That's a Lord... Great sermon, thanks for that. Maybe they're saying, Lord, those miracles are incredible. We appreciate so much what you're doing. I mean, people do this. They do this to Christian workers. Of course, in the disciples' case, Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, that made all the difference. But the challenge still stands. It stands for all of us. Jesus says to us in this passage that we can do it. We can do it. What? By faith. By faith in his strength and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is always, so why don't we? Why don't we? In Acts 3, there's a fantastic example of how to do it right. Now, this is post-Pentecost. Of course, the situation's changed. The spirits come. And Peter, Peter heals that disabled beggar at the temple gate. Remember, in Acts 3... And he showed us how to do it right. This is a different story. Because he said to that poor man, he said in Acts 3, verse 6, What I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, work. And it happened. And then as you read on, when people expressed astonishment at this, Peter said, look at this, verse 12, Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power, or our own godliness, we'd made this man walk?" Peter knew where the power came from now. He said very clearly, it is the faith that comes through Jesus that has given healing to this man. And it's a wonderful story. You know how it developed. Of course, they got arrested. They had to go before the Sanhedrin. But you notice how it finishes. When the Sanhedrin heard them, and when they saw the courage, Acts 4.13, of Peter and John, and realized... They were unschooled, ordinary men. These were not special. These were ordinary guys. They were astonished. But what? They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Uh, I think that's a challenging passage. You see, they show no weakness now in the absence of Christ's physical presence. Yes, Christ is ascended. He's not with them physically anymore. But they took knowledge that they'd been with Jesus. What an opportunity for us to spend time with the Lord and for people to notice that, and that will make a huge difference. You see, these disciples, Peter now knew the presence of the Lord, but he knew it just like we do, through the Holy Spirit, as we wait on him in prayer. They had the Lord's presence in the same way we have the Lord's presence, and that's through the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, I want to get a little more into this um, the moving mountains, mustard um, seed thing, so just let me wrap that up by saying the difference it makes, people will really notice the difference if you spend more personal time with the Lord, and that's priority number one. And people will take note, and you'll get that power too, the special power of the Lord. But I want to get to the uh, explaining this passage, often misunderstood, where Jesus said... If you have faith like a mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds planted, well, you'll be able to do incredible things. And Jesus is saying that that even this little faith would give the disciples, as well as us, access to incredible power. In fact, I think the Lord's really saying, basically to have less faith than a mustard seed is to have no faith at all. And he said this, but let's look at it. He said in verse 20, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, people have misunderstood this verse. They've taken it to mean anything we pray for should happen. We need to be absolutely clear that faith is not a carte blanche to supernatural power that gives us control over people and events faith doesn't make God a sort of genie who grants our wishes. You see, the Lord actually isn't talking about a literal mountain here because neither the apostles nor the Lord himself nor anyone else in the history of the church for that matter has done such a pointless miracle as moving a mountain by praying. What he's really saying is that faith is the strongest power in the world when it connects with God. You see, this expression to move mountains is actually a figure of speech and it's telling us that God's power has the ability to surmount any obstacle that we encounter in life. And we can certainly take it from this passage that faith in God's promises and power, it's an instrument that can allow us to accomplish the hardest task or overcome the greatest difficulty. And you know, I mean, people uh, in churches like this must have heard of one of my heroes of faith, George Muller, who came from my home country, England, and founded those wonderful orphanages in Bristol and so forth. But I read his story and recently read about how he began to pray for five friends. And five years later, one of them accepted Christ. And he continued to pray. And five more years later, two more became Christians. And then after 25 years, the fourth man was saved. And Muller continued to pray for his fifth friend. But then Muller died. And it was actually many months after George Muller's death that this last friend came to salvation and he'd been prayed for for more than 50 years. And I read that and thought how we need to pray in faith for those children and grandchildren that are away from the Lord. And I could tell you story after story about grandparents whose children and grandchildren came to the Lord way after they died, but they prayed in faith through their life. And it's just a reminder about faith and prayer in this great passage. You know, I've just come back. We had the great privilege in November and December of finally making that trip to Israel and Egypt and Jordan. Just made Egypt in time, I guess. Um, and, and so I have a lot more knowledge now of the history and, and probable background of these figures of speech, like moving mountains. Uh, and I just want to share a couple of things i picked up. You see, King Herod the Great is the king that died 4 BC, before Jesus was born. But he was an insanely jealous man. He was paranoid bit like some of the guys in the Middle East today who are dictators, but he was paranoid about protecting his power and his position, and because of this, he did a lot of building. He was Herod the builder. He built fortresses, specially built fortresses all over the place, and he built three main ones that I went to see. There's a the famous Masada that overlooks the Dead Sea, to the uh, Masada to the east, and it and overlooks those great salt flats around the Dead Sea and it's an incredible place to visit because it sits on an enormous pinnacle of rock on top of of which are built huge battlements and they can hold off any attacker indefinitely. In fact, a very famous story in Jewish history that they told us was how a small army of Jewish rebels once held off the entire Roman army for a full year at Masada. Very famous incident. And Herod built other fortresses. He built one in the south because he was also fearful that he would be invaded from Egypt. And it was not a big one. And he built this thing submerged into the mountain. And, of course, he named it after himself. It was a famous Herodian. And you can see the ruins of the Herodian and the way he built into the mountain uh, today in the Middle East. And when he died, he was supposed to be buried at that site. But I'm telling you this because when he went to the north, It was just a large flat plain and there was no natural mountain to use to build a high fortress. So what he did, because he had enormous power, he had enormous resources, he had thousands of Jewish forced laborers, so he worked for years and moved 10 tons of limestone blocks, each one weighing 10 tons, that is, and he literally moved a mountain. That horrendous... Slave labor moved a mountain uh, and he built, a, literally, moved a neighboring mountain and built a mountain fortress on a flat plain. And I stood there very lightly at the place where Jesus was teaching his disciples, and wherever it was around there, you can see this. You can't miss these, these on a the flat plain. Now, these disciples knew about the hundreds of thousands of hours of forced labor, the sweat, the toil, the effort, the agony that it took to put a mountain there. So what I realize Jesus is saying to these disciples as they looked at this is he's telling them that you have at your disposal, if you're obedient and have true faith in me, you have a power greater than any earthly king could ever have. He's saying with a mustard seed of faith, That is, if you have any measure of faith at all, and if you practice that faith, the huge mountain-moving power of the Holy Spirit is available to you. And you can imagine how impressed they'd be by that. You know, I tried to research whether there'd been any real mountain-movings besides that. The only literal mountain-moving that I was able to research was an event in the 1800s when an earthquake near Java caused a whole mountain to vanish when five cubic miles of earth exploded. And I, I thought, you know, really the Lord is lightening the power of faith in him to power that's like earthquakes that can move mountains are the most powerful king. And, and, and with these kinds of extravagant promises of spiritual power from the Lord, I thought about my life and about Christians today. and I thought it's so sad that some of us seem... We doubt we could move an, ant, an anthill or a molehill, let alone a mountain. Uh, you see, this is a significant challenge. If you claim to follow Christ, the challenge is, are you ready to do things in faith for the Lord? Do you really believe the Lord can empower you in faith? Uh, and, and, and sort the of challenge is, if we'll move beyond being spectators to becoming players in God's great mission to reclaim the world. You see, what Jesus said, and he talked about this in another place in Matthew 13, about mustard seed faith. Jesus said that the mustard seed, hey, it grows. It grows to become a tree, so much so that the birds can perch in its branches. What Jesus said is mustard seed faith grows. A little faith grows. You know, as I studied this, and i uh, wrap it up very quickly, but I want you to get this, I came across a great verse in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Jeremiah seventeen five. It said, They who rely on human wisdom are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. Get that. They that rely on human wisdom are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. In contrast... This passage talks about the Lord's strength and I think what Jesus is saying here is that faith is like a tiny seed you plant expecting to get a bush but what you get is a tree much bigger than your wildest dreams and he's saying that's what the kingdom of heaven is and that's what faith can accomplish. See, it's not just the concept of a huge thing coming from a small thing but it's something beyond our wildest dreams something better something beyond what we can imagine. So this is it, and we'll wrap it up with this. These are the bottom line challenges to grapple with. Do do you want to be a, what did Jeremiah say? A stunted shrub, or do you want to be a huge tree? And the challenge is, will you exercise your mustard seed of faith so it can grow? And will you be part of God's plan for saving the world and the key is, you see, how and where will you exercise your faith? Will you exercise it? not just think about it to participate in God's great mission. You see, the encouraging thing that the Lord says in this passage is that blessing and success come not from the size of your faith. It can be like the smallest mustard seed but from the fact that it's based on the Lord's power, it's based on the Lord's promises, and it's based on the Lord's will, and it's placed in Him. And I have to say, even a little faith is effective when it's placed in God and His promises. And the challenge is, the Lord's ascended. There are no physical hands and feet and voice of the Lord on earth anymore. Like those disciples, we don't have His presence in that way. And so the challenge is, Will you use your hands and your feet and your voice? Will you say, yes, we can. That is, the Lord and I can do it. May God help you. The mission of God, you know, where you live and amongst your contacts, it hinges on you. Uh, and the question is, will you take up this challenge and become a player who does it by faith? Or would you be content? You know, we do this. I want to watch to see who will do it. Because it will get done. God's work will be accomplished. But how great to say, yes, Lord, we can. May God challenge us. Tonight we're going to talk about obedience and what Jesus taught about it. But may God challenge us to look at our faith. Time has gone, so let's just pray as we uh, apply that word to our hearts. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus. We ask you to forgive us for the paucity of our faith. And we pray in his powerful name that you will challenge us today to exercise our mustard seed of faith and see things move because we trust you. Bless your people here. Bring us back tonight and guide us in a way as we commit our lives to you
0: in the powerful name of Christ our Lord.